Jesus, we thank you this morning for that truth that you are a promise keeper, that our covenant with you is, you are faithful to it. And I pray that in the midst of what at times seems faithless, we will remember that you are for us, that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in you. And that this word that we see this morning will help us to walk with you better. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Thanks so much to the band for leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the 8th chapter of the book of Joshua. I'm going to read this text over us. And so that we can walk through it together. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 29 later in our time together. I will read verses 30 through 35. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will, appro will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as it was before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it to you into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and they lay between Bethel and I to the west of I but Joshua spent that night among the people and Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people of I and all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of I with a ravine between them and I he took about 5,000 men and he sent them in ambush between Bethel and I to the west of the city so they stationed the forces the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city but Joshua spent the night in the valley and as soon as the king of I saw this he and all his people the men of the city they hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city and Joshua and Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and they fled in the direction of the wilderness so all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them 
And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and they pursued Israel. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and they entered the city and they captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So the men of Ai looked back. Behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and the smoke of the city went up, and they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive, and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, and all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai, but Joshua, he did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder. According to the word of the Lord that he commanded them. So Joshua burned Ai and he made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening and at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day I've been in the south the mo most of my life Texas which is a derivative of the South, but it's not the South really, it's Texas. And if you've ever been, Texas is Texas, that's why you think you're your own country. <laughs> but if you've been in these two areas, you realize that there is one king, and that is college football. We love it. And if your team is bad, which my team is, you regularly are processing what will take place when you fire your head coach. You will get a new head coach in just a few years. Tennessee, my team has been through it. Texas has recently been through it. Lots of teams go through this. The only team that does not go through getting new coaches is Alabama, but there's the trade-off of literacy there. So I'm not sure as to which one's the win and which one's the loss. When you get your new coach, you have to deal with game plan shifts, schemes, a different approach to winning and losing. You have to deal with what will we do with the players we have. When you have a brand new coach, he has players from another coach. And he has to figure out, with my scheme, how am I going to implement from week one to the end of the season something that will resemble effectiveness? Because these are not players who are built for what I have. So what if you're a college football fan and you watch... 
And every week it seems like your coach is abandoning the scheme. He is changing his approach. First week of the season, he's running an eye formation. The next week of the season, he's running a, an air raid spread. The next week of the season, he's running something completely different. From week to week, his plan and his plot are different. The way that he will accomplish his mission, the way that he will fulfill his obligation to the school and to his contract where he is paid in an inexorbitant amount of money, he's approaching those things differently from week to week. When we get to chapter 8 of Joshua, we are working through the battles. We are thinking through what God is doing and how God would do those things. And we notice that the God of the Bible continually shifts schemes. He changes from one approach to war to another approach of war. He shows that he's God in different ways to these people. There are times when they march around a city with instruments. And then there are the times where they set up an attack with this bait and switch approach. From battle to battle, God's, God has Joshua's army approach a battle differently. And in so doing, we see the active hand of God in every aspect of victory in order that the people will have no doubt as to whom the victory belongs. So today, we're going to look at this battle, but I want us to consider not so much the actual battle. As we've mentioned throughout this series, in the Scriptures you see prescriptive texts and you see descriptive texts. Descriptive texts are telling us what happens and why those things happen, and we can extrapolate some truths from those things. But when we walk through this battle, we can see that God has a plan. But what is important to us is that we would see this battle, this battle that God has called the people to, in light of what surrounds it. Because what surrounds what God does in this battle is what is significant to the people that Joshua led and to the people here at Grace Bible and to Christians all around the world today. So let's look at our God in light of what this text teaches. The first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is that God restores. If you're a note taker, those are two good words to write down. That God restores. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear nor be dismayed. These words remind us of God's initial call to Joshua. One of everyone's favorite verses. A verse that we post on social media. This is God reminding Joshua that he has not changed his commitment to him. Because if you'll remember in Joshua 1.9 and Joshua 1.5 and Joshua 1.7 and Joshua 1.18, Do not fear nor be dismayed. Be strong and take courage. Last week we looked at a battle where Joshua did not listen to God. He went out on his own. He did not do the work of making sure that those who were under his command fulfilled their obligation to God's direction. You would think that we would take a time out looking at this passage. Where Joshua would have a woe is me moment. Where there would be distance between Joshua and the Lord. Where God would set himself apart from Joshua to let him feel the weight of his wrongdoing. But that's not how God acts towards those he loves. Be strong 
and take courage. If you weren't here, last week we looked at the people approaching I on their own and how they were defeated at this battle. We also looked at how Joshua was in a situation where he had to enforce capital punishment on a man who was not obedient to what God had asked of them. We look and we see that Joshua has to deal with the sin of a man that affected the nation as a whole. And this chasm, this distance between him and God would be very obvious to any of us when we consider God in the way that many of us do as a higher version of ourselves with a long white beard and for whatever reason wearing a flowing robe. But when we look at this text, God immediately follows up the separation of Joshua from himself by using words to reiterate and to re-energize Joshua. The same words that he said throughout this, cha- this book are the words that he says to him right here in light of his struggle. Be strong and take courage. These are words that are used to call. They are words that God uses to to correct us. They are words that God uses to draw us to Himself. Not the only place we see these words. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6. Be strong, courageous, and firm. Fear not, nor be in terror before them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Deuteronomy 31, Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of Israel, Be strong, courageous, and firm. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord charged Joshua, son of Nun, Be strong and courageous. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, You be strong and very courageous. Joshua 1, 9, Have I not commanded you? Commanded, be strong and courageous. 118, be strong, vigorous, and of good courage. Joshua chapter 10, Joshua said, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage. God says these words when he calls Joshua. He says these words to comfort Joshua. He says these words to correct Joshua. God comforts, calls, and corrects with this truth. I am with you. God is saying to us that he is faithful... Because he is faithful, not because we are. And that is a true hope that every one of us as followers of Jesus need to lean our lives into. That the faithfulness of God is not dependent upon how faithful I am. God is faithful to us because he is. I'm guessing that in this room there are some of us who are struggling in our walk with Jesus because of some failure on our part. Your failure does not mute God's ability. He says to you, be strong, take courage, do not fear nor be dismayed. Much like Cher, you do not have the ability to turn back time. You cannot fix your mistake or redirect and recorrect your uh, shortcomings. We don't have time turners. What we have is a God who has committed himself to us. God's people's hearts were melting in chapter 7. Very much like the people that they had been defeating throughout the entirety of this book. They were defeated. They could not undo their collective wrongdoing. So you move forward, God says. 
by clinging to my promises today and chasing after obedience to my commands right here, right now. Be strong and take courage. So many of us are weighed down by the mistakes and faults of our pasts. You don't know what I did and you don't understand why I did it. God could never love me for that. You, You cannot grasp the weight of our sin, which I cannot. But not only do we have a God who can grasp the weight of your sin, He actually died for it. And your sin He understands in full. A popular phrase that we love to use is that we would let go and let God. Now I just need to be honest with you, that's a dumb quote. And I would encourage you not to use it if you don't want to be judged by me like I judge many of you who would be late to church on a day after we'd given you an extra hour of sleep. I mean, let's be for real people. The idea of let go and let God is unlike the God who calls us to commitment. It's a God who says to us, your relationship with me is not one where you just hang out and watch your favorite show on Hulu and you let God be God. That's not the relationship that we have. The relationship that we do have with God is one where when we see our faults, when we acknowledge our struggle, when our sin is obvious to us, we say to God, I, I, I can't do anything about that, but thank God. Thank you that you already have. So I'm going to cling to you moving forward. Think about what Peter tells us. Brothers, this is in 2 Peter. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's my reference to the midterms for the week. That's a joke. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail... Again, you are not courageous and God has not called us to courage for the sake of courage. God has called us to courage for the sake of mission. That God would use a life full of fault to declare that He is faultless to a faulty generation. God restores Joshua by saying to him, Be strong and take courage. He alludes to that. Do not fear nor be dismayed because I've not left you. And I would just say to many of us right now, God has not left you. You have not been dropped to second string or third string. You are not on a different tier. Your relationship with Him is not one that is disjointed because He is committed to you because our God is committed. He is faithful. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, your condemnation does not get to be your new definition. Because there is none when we are in Him. Second thing we see is that God reminds. He does remind the, the nation of Israel, the person of Joshua, of what had taken place before. What had happened was, as we like to say, In Joshua chapter 7, we see that they, as we mentioned earlier, out of the Bible, they actually acted outside of Him. They kept things they should not keep. And they were handily defeated at I. And I had no business defeating them. 
think that's where we get turned around in passages like this. I think that's where Joshua would say that he was turned around. He looked at Jericho and said, Oh my, there's no way that we can win this battle. But Joshua immediately began to scheme and plan for I. We don't have to send everybody, we'll just send a few. They failed, not because they were not capable. They were operating outside of God's direction. Church family, God's not called us to do anything apart from Him. Nothing. You've not been called by God to do anything that is apart from God. With God, Jericho was overthrown. Without him, even little I was insurmountable. We need God's help just as much for the little eyes in our life as we do for the giant Jerichos. Because this battle is his battle to win. Now, I mentioned earlier, we're going to quickly look over what takes place in the the battle portion of this passage. Verses 3 through 9, God gives his instruction. We read it a few moments ago, and the instruction that he gives to the nation of Israel is, here's what's going to happen. We're going to set a trap for them. Joshua's going to lead some people. When the king of Ai sees that group of people, he knows he can defeat them because he's already defeated a group that is similar in size to that group. He'll come out, we'll swoop in from a different direction. And we will defeat this nation. We will take their land. Joshua is the distraction. He leads the people to be the distraction. And there's this invasion where finally, finally the people of God do what God has told them to do. And they go in and they wipe out this people. Again, some of us say, and I have to remind us and remind myself as I read through these texts, when we look at the story of Joshua, we have our God, and it seems as if he is barbaric and savage, but he is not. The consistent theme throughout Scripture is anytime someone would ask for the mercy of the Lord God of the Bible, he gives them mercy. The symbolic sign that we see in Joshua chapter 5 is the idea of the, of the closed gates. Those closed gates are very important to our understanding of this text because what we see is that any time that someone would say to God, you can have this, we'll bow down, we'll bend down, we'll trust in you, then God allows them to be fused into his family. But any time there are those who would stand in opposition to the Lord with their doors closed and their gates shut... Joshua reminds them that he's God. God reminds them that he's God. The invasion takes place. Verses 14 through 24. They killed all the inhabitants of the land. They took this land because it was in effect God's land. This belongs to God. And there were those who were usurpers there. But the problem's not really that the, the Canaanites are there. It's that there is rebellion against this God. Next thing that we see, as we look at verses 2 and 27, if you'll go to 27 with me. Not only does God restore, which he does for me and for you. Not only does God remind, which he offers for, for those of us who have fallen short. For those of us who have struggled God rewards. Verse 2. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Verse 27. 
Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took at their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. What if Achan had waited? Achan, if you'll remember, is the man who decided to steal a lifetime's wages and that really sweet Babylonian blanket. He kept those things as if they were his own. Covetousness, as one theologian says, consumes us. When, we, when our focus shifts from God's goodness to his goods. It's the theology of the serpent. It's the theology that we see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. It's the focus on God's restriction rather than his provision. And how many of us right now are in places where we are struggling with our walk with the Lord because we are far too focused on what he has restricted us to from as opposed to what he has provided us with? The livestock and the spoil and all of those things you can have. Let's go to verse 28. Because not only do we see that God, that God would restore and that God would remind and that God would reward. At the heart of this text is that God replaces. Is that God would offer a replacement for this king who hangs. Go verse 28. Let's go. So Joshua burned down Ai and he made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the gate, and the city raised over it a heap of stones, which stands there to this day. That's a remembrance pile. It's a memorial of the wrath of God. So let's remember what God did here. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, as we've mentioned throughout this series, to, to hang on a tree, it's a curse. So you have this king who had rebelled against God who hangs on a tree as a curse. The curse is not there because it's hanging on the tree, but the curse is there because there is rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God is not limited to the king of I. It's actually in each and every one of our hearts. When we read through the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus chapter 19, it shows that these people are defiled very much like I'm defiled and you're defiled. It shows wickedness present in the people of, of Canaan, at the people of I. Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 and 5. This has nothing to do with the righteousness of the Jewish people or the righteousness of me or of you. We're actually defiled and wicked in our own power. We are defiled and wicked and because of our defilement and our wickedness every single one of us no matter how polite you may happen to be or kind you are or how well you've raised your children to call adults words like Mr. and Mrs. before you say their first name if you're good enough friends God would say to you that you are cursed but what we find in 28 and 29 in light of the fullness of God's teaching is that not only does he restore, not only does God remind, not only does he reward us who would look to him as our provider and not just a, the one who restricts us, God replaces. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 
someone hung in our place on a tree. He stood in our place as a curse for us. This story that we see in Joshua chapter 8 is taking us to that person. Because you have a man who was justly hung on a tree for his sins and the sins of the people that he led. And we have one who would be unjustly hung on a tree for those that he would call to himself because our curse was limited and Jesus has broken it. Verses 30 through 35, we see not only does God restore and God remind and God reward and God replace, which is at the heart of this text, we see God renewing. Go with me if you have your Bibles to verse 30. After this battle, something odd happens. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Abal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and they sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, all Israel, all of Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and their officers and their judges, they stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Abal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, According to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. We see here that God renews. God renews covenant commitments. God has renewed and reminded and restored his covenant commitment. Because covenant commitments, we are not reminded of them simply when things are good. We are reminded of those things in the face of hard times. Think through your own life. Think through the moments in your life where you would say that you are hashtag blessed the most. Of course it seems that you are in covenant relationship with God. God has cared for me. God has loved me. God has blessed me. God has taken care of my children. He has loved them so well. God has kept his covenant. But what about when God uses the points of reference in our life's struggles to say to us that his covenant still stands? 
That he is there, not simply when things are good, but the covenant he has called you to is to be there in the face of hardship and difficulty. This covenant renewal comes in an odd place in this text because they've just won a battle and we go to a worship service. There's no transition of emotion there. But it's according to the directions God has given in Deuteronomy. It's at Shechem. Shechem's a major place in the history of God's people. 600 years earlier, you've heard of Abraham, many sons, many sons of the father of Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. Right on. Abraham received the promises of the land there. As a matter of fact, Abraham built his first altar there. Jacob returned here after exile. Jacob dug a well here. One, a well that Jesus would eventually drink from when chatting with a Samaritan woman. Joseph, Joseph, coat of many colors, he looked for his brothers here when they had abandoned him and he would eventually be buried at Shechem. But as we read through these verses in 30 through 35, we see God use the word all multiple times. Why? What's God saying about how he works? If you'll remember, we are removed from the generation that had been circumcised yet had fallen away. We have this new generation that's circumcised late in life. We have a new generation that has grafted those who would open their doors to the Lord. Rahab and her family. Many others as we look through the Torah, the Pentateuch here. God uses the word all through the writer of the book of Joshua because he has these people who have never heard the word. And he is allowing them to hear the word. The word of the Lord for his people. But if we're not careful, when we think through the word of the Lord, we, we view it mechanically. It's cold to many of us. We're not to hear the word in that way. They're between two mountains here. I love this. Gerizim, and, and on Gerizim, that's the mountain of blessing. And Ebal is the, it's the mountain of, of curse. God's making a statement here. Look, if you are committed to my ways, and in your commitment to my ways, I will bless you. But when you are opposed to my ways, there, there's curse that's there. But Joshua is encouraged by God to, to use these mountains as an object lesson. Keep my, bless, keep my law, there's blessing for you. Don't keep my law, there, there's curse. However, there's, this is a huge however, so don't miss this. There's an altar built there, right? You would think that we would build the altar on the mountain of blessing. That would be the place that I would build an altar. I don't want to go near the curse mountain. I don't want anything to do with the cursed mountain. But God builds the altar on the mountain of Ebal, on the cursed mountain, the mountain of curse and consequence. Why? 
Because by putting the, mount, the altar there, we are reminded that in our cursed, wicked, depraved state, God has provided a way for us to still meet with Him. Samaritans didn't get that. The Samaritan woman tells Jesus right here, we worship on this mountain, on the blessed mountain, but you worship on the cursed one. But the transition from curse to blessing is standing right beside her. The altar who lives and breathes does not wait to meet with us in our blessing. He meets us in our cursed state. Australian theologian whose accent I can't replicate in his death on the cross, Christ becomes the place of refuge. The place in the world where the full wrath of God has already been spent. Therefore, to stand in Christ is to stand in a place where the wrath of God will never be felt. Because it has already been there. Let's not read this mechanically coldly I get it some of us are old Bible heads I am I grew up in church I've heard all of the verses especially the ones that Baptist preachers like to preach I was at church every time the doors were open and I heard verses read but I didn't hear them in the same way that lots of us we're we listen, but we don't hear. Anybody deal with that at your house? It's like many times we're the husband who has his retort in place. Because though it seems that he's listening, he's not hearing what his wife says. We hear the verses of the Lord, but they are not meant to be cold and sterile. The word of the Lord is meant to warm and melt our hearts so that we realize that our curse has been broken. I'm going to read some verses where blessing and curse seem to come together. I would encourage us as a faith family if we can get to a place where we don't just hear these as something we've heard over and over. I want us to hear these and the weight of them maybe as if we're hearing them for the first time. you bow your heads zone in for a minute and hear where blessing and curse come together for God 
so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Curse Trump by blessing. For the wages of sin, the curse of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Curse Trump by blessing. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John says this. My little children. I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Our curse for those of us who were in Jesus has been broken. By a blessing that says, be strong. Take courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Because I, the Lord your God, am with you. The blessing. The blessing of God for his people. So let's hear him. Because everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. But it did not fall. Because it was founded on the rock. You're here and you may have never placed your faith in Jesus. We have looked through a passage that speaks to God's people and you are not one of God's people. You don't have a relationship with Christ but he offers you a blessing to trump the curse. He offers you a relationship where he says I'm with you. So that's you. I would, I would just ask you to repent of your sin. Jesus, I need you because I am sinful. But you are sinless and I want, I want to accept your blessing of life in you and with you. Because you break the curse of sin. If that's you, I'll be at the back corner of the room. When we begin to sing in a moment, everyone's going to stand up and I want you to slip out and meet me in that back corner. For those of us who are in Jesus, believers in Jesus, relationship with Jesus, what if as we sing this morning, we take this concept that we've looked at that God's blessing has defeated our curse and we allow these verses that I've asked us somehow to hear again for the first time 
to empower us to sing aloud, to lift our hands, to kneel before the throne, to respond to God, who has made himself known and available to us, and who has said, I am with you. Be strong and take courage. Do not fear to meet his name.